Well, that was beautiful, wasn't it? It's rare that we get the opportunity to hear God's Word proclaimed in different languages. And it just reminds us how far-reaching God's Word has gone and impacting the world. Um, a few years ago, I was in Chicago, um, and Craigslist <laughs> brought one of the most interesting conversations right to my front door. Um, I had a potential customer who was interested in my well-used dresser, and I found out that he was a pastor from the south side of Chicago. And when he found out that I was in seminary, that's when the conversation got real interesting. Um, it was right before he left. I remember he looked at me and he said, Gabriel, just a few Sundays ago, the Spirit of God spoke to me. And he told me to grab the Bible, throw it on the ground, stomp on it in front of the whole congregation. And I saw his eyes like fill up with this focused zeal as he looked at his hands, almost reenacting it. And, and then he says, this book, it's just a book. And it's not going to get in the way of God speaking to us. And I was <laughs> I was a bit shocked, um, and I tried my best, you know, to keep my mouth closed, but I'm sure I just kind of stood there for a second because he asked me, Gabriel, do you hear what I just said? You know, um, it, it was one of those awestruck kind of moments, and I'm pretty sure it's a good bet that each and every one of us has either known someone personally or has seen someone on the news has done something absolutely terrible, and then they justify it with the phrase, but God told me to do it. Oh, <laughs> well, in that case, of course you can genocide this whole community. I mean, right? I mean, no, of course not. And why not? It's in moments like these, we can't avoid the question of how do we navigate a world where so many people have said that God has spoken to them, and then we have all these conflicting messages. What do we do? Now, one response um, is to say that really behind all of these messages is the same God. And behind all of these sacred books is the same message. The only problem is, is the more you read these teachings, the more you understand how these gods have revealed themselves, not only are the messages very different, but even the concepts of who God is portrayed to be is very different. So it's not even just about the message, but it's the concept of how you view God. For example, Hinduism, with its many gods, has a God for every sphere of life. There's various gods, whereas Jehovah's Witnesses have the viewpoint of one ultimate God that even Jesus is subservient to. If you want to go one step further, then, then you go, try telling someone who, who knows the Quran, um, who has traveled to Mecca, and really tries to inhabit the teachings of Muhammad and tell them that their message is pretty much the same message from the same God from Judaism. Then do that in Palestine, you know? Any takers? I don't think so, right? I think we can come with a pretty, at least agreement, just for a second, a pretty good agreement that there is some conflicting messages in the world being offered. So how do we navigate, how do we navigate what is authentic and what is absurd? Well, for Christians, the answers come down to one word, the Bible. The Bible. And uh, actually, throughout history, Christians have been known, interestingly enough, as a people of the book. Not a people of books. We weren't just readers. Um, not a people of any old book, but the book, the Bible, throughout history. 
And uh, you, what you find throughout history, too, is people are dying, like literally dying to have a translation in their own language. People are giving up food and shelter to own their own personal copy of God's word. People are being persecuted because they're trying to bring the Bible to others. Why? Why? It's not because the Bible is some really accurate historical account, although it is, and it carries one of the most robust understandings of human history. It's not because the Bible is a collection of really good ideas, although it has some of the best ideas of defeating destructive habits, growing in love and self-sacrifice, encouraging human flourishing. And it's not even because the Bible is a really good book about God, about his nature, about his attributes. The reason the Bible is such a big deal is because it's a book from God about who he is, about what he's done, about what he will do. And what God has said is better than anything we can make up. What God has said about himself is better than anything that we can make up. Now, some of you may be thinking, Gabe, look, I love the Bible. That's why I'm here at Christ Community. Um, This message isn't really for me, and already your eyes are starting to glaze over. Well, I have a question that I think concerns all of us, that we all need to wrestle through. Why aren't we reading it? Why aren't we reading it? I mean, in the United States, we have... Bibles everywhere. You could walk down the street and possibly find one in a corner that someone's like, well, I've got six of them. I don't need that one. You know, and the Gideons have put them in every hotel you can imagine. So we've got Bibles everywhere. So why aren't we reading it? And look, this isn't, the point of this isn't to, uh, to bring us on a guilt trip. It's just to be honest about our practices with one another and how our practices reveal our priorities And then one step deeper, how our priorities reveal what we really believe about the Bible. What we really believe about the Bible. If we're honest, probably most of us in here believe that the Bible is the good book. You know, this is the phrase that's throughout our history. The Bible is the good book, but when push comes to shove, it's not the best book. It's not the ultimate authority in our lives. But it is a good book nonetheless. But imagine... What if we stopped believing the Bible was just a good book, but it was really God's word to us? What if we really, I mean, really believe that what God has said is better than anything we can make up? And that's when we get to Psalm 19. That's what our author, he wants us to see that. He wants us to understand the depths and the beauty of God's word. I mean, the Psalms, they were at the core of the worship of God's people, The Psalms then became the very language on how we describe almost indescribable feelings of pain and passion. And the author uses these songs of poetry to wax eloquently of the beauty and brilliance of God's word. Quick question. What do you do when you love someone? When I mean you really love them. When you're in conversation, you hang on every word right? You can't wait. What are they going to say? What, does it have to do with me? You know, what, what are they going to do? And here the psalmist, he's seen the depths of who God is, and he's enthralled with God's words and God's word. And so this morning, we're going to lean into verses 7 through 14 here of Psalm 19, and we'll see that what God has said is better than anything that we can make up, because what God has said is sight for the blind It's food for the starving, and it's joy for the brokenhearted. If you haven't already, would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19? 
If you're um, using one of the community Bibles, you can find this passage on page number 291. And before we do that, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds that are willing to understand, hearts that are willing to be molded. Holy Spirit, do your magnificent work in speaking and bringing to life God's word in our lives. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you are listening to the psalm carefully, not only would you have heard various languages reading it this morning, whether it be Mandarin, uh, French, or Spanish, or English, um, but you would have noticed, especially in verses nine, 7 through 9, that there's an assumption that underlays what the psalmist is talking about. And it's critical. If we miss this assumption, then we're going to miss the whole point of his beautiful song. And in verses 7 through 9, he wants us to know that when God speaks, it changes people. When God speaks, it actually changes people. Throughout his poetic imagery, the author, he describes the brilliance of the Bible using words like the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. God has spoken. He's not remained silent. But what do his words do to us? And the psalmist, he wants us to know that his words impact us the way they've impacted creation from the beginning. They give life out of nothing. They bring purpose to dust. They bring order out of chaos. They clean up the mess that they find. And the psalmist says that God's word, it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever. May we have ears to hear that. Um, And what that assumes is that each and every one of us, in each case here in this verse, the opposite is true of us. Before God speaks, we're starving. Before God speaks, we're blind. Before God speaks, we can't endure, let alone endure forever. We desperately need God to speak if we have any hope of seeing life. And this is pretty offensive news at the start to say that we're blind, that we're starving, that we can't make it on our own. I mean, who is he to say this? But the author, he doesn't see this as offensive. He sees this as good news because when God speaks, his word is sight for the blind. It's a free gift. And apart from it, we fumble around like a blind man seeking to feel his way around a minefield. If we believe the Bible is given by the purest most righteous and cleanest person in existence, then we'll believe his word is, as the psalmist says, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous altogether. And imagine you're in a room with the most righteous, purest, cleanest person who's ever existed. Instantly, some of your own flaws are going to come out, right? You may not like what you see in the mirror, but it's kind of absurd to then be offended at the mirror rather than what is being reflected in the mirror. So imagine you're at a dinner party. You imagine you're at a dinner party and you're sitting there and you're eating and you've got such great delicacies on your plate. And then you go back to the the restroom and as you're washing your hands, you notice you have this huge chunk of parsley in your teeth. Have you ever been there? I have. And instantly it clicks. Oh, that's why they were staring at my mouth and no one said anything. Excellent. Um, well, you have one or, two, one, one or two options. One, you can get the parsley out of your teeth 
and leave now, hopefully uh, avoiding any more embarrassment. Or you can think the mirror is all cracked and messed up and be offended at the mirror. Come on, there's a chunk out of the mirror. That's what that is. That's not parsley in my teeth. And then walk with your head held high. Act like this is supposed to be there. You're supposed to have parsley in your teeth. Well, for some of us, we wrestle with Scripture being a bit outdated, even though it's reflecting back our brokenness. We can think that it's out of date, that the Bible is so narrowly written. But to the contrary, it's not so narrowly written to just fit a 21st century Western culture and to affirm everything that we are. In the same way that it wasn't written in a 6th century Eastern culture to affirm everything in that culture, such that when the 22nd century comes, and as ideologies continue to change, as cultures continue to progress, when the 22nd century comes in the West and things look very different, God's word will remain the same. God's word points out parsley in everybody's teeth, regardless of what culture you find yourself. For example, in our culture, we have an issue, right, with a God who's judging, that he's just. And it comes across in the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? How could he do that? Whereas if we talk to some of our friends who have grown up in the eastern part of the globe, they have a God, or they they wrestle with a God of grace. How could a good God forgive sinners? That's the question in their culture. And so what we find when we read scripture is that God is absolutely just and outstandingly gracious. And so he challenges the perception that that culture has of God in both cultures. Scripture is, it supersedes culture and our natural biases that we carry. And what this reveals is that we don't even realize how blind we are until we let God start to show us how blind we are, until we let him reveal the truth of his word to us. I mean, this is why it's so important to know what we believe about the Bible, because it's the only way to see who God really is. It's the only way to see who God really is. If you don't have a God who challenges you, your God is probably just a bigger vision, version of who you are. And if you know yourself, that's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? Because we know our own faults, our own flaws, our own setbacks. And then secondarily, also because of that, we become the kind of people who are deaf to others. We know the people who say that God agrees with everything that they think. They're pretty insufferable to be around, right? They're the people at Thanksgiving, they always have the empty chair next to them. Oh, I don't want to sit next to Uncle Frank, you know. He always is, you know. And so then, then Frank is like having to sit there uh, waiting for somebody to sit next to him so he can talk their ear off. But those who know the Bible and know what the Bible really is have become the kind of people who know how to listen. They know how to listen well. Why? Because like the psalmist, their eyes have been open to the fact that they don't have all the answers, that they too have a ways to go, that they also need to learn from God. And they practice the art of listening on a regular basis by opening God's word to actually hear what God is saying. Now, as a quick aside, for some of us, the bigger issue has to do with whether the Bible is really pure like the psalmist says. And the questions come not really about what it says, although that happens too, but more about how it came to say what it says. You know what I mean? So the questions aren't about what it says, but how it came to say what it says. I mean, this was actually brought up by, it was 4.30 yesterday morning, and yes, I was outside, and yes, I was awake. 
And I came over to the downtown campus, and there's a guy painting. This is the first time I've ever seen this. 4.30 in the morning, he's painting away over here on Kenton Brothers. And we struck up a conversation. And the first, well, almost the first question he asks when we start talking about the church is, I believe God really did speak. Um, but when human beings got involved and started writing this stuff down, that's when it all got messed up. That's when it all got kind of crazy. And we had this conversation for a little while before I had coffee. And I don't know why. This, this happens a lot around 4.30 or 5.30 with me. I run into people, and they're really ready to talk, and I'm not. You know, I need coffee before my mind and the spirit starts working. I don't know how that does. But, but within this statement that he made, there's the assumption that God cared enough to speak life-giving words into culture, but he didn't care enough to preserve them. And God is kind of hamstrung by human frailty at best, or at worst, he's cruel, and he's spreading all these little bits of truth that make us war with one another. That's the kind of God he believes in, and we wrestled with this together at 4.30 in the morning. Um, (laughs) And beside the fact that this isn't how the Bible reveals who God is, the other problem is that it just doesn't reflect what we see in the best scholarship of the day. Um, with, with the most recent discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we, we, ha- we find this unparalleled purity in the handwritten copy of biblical manuscripts over millennia, dating with even decades to the New Testament manuscripts. And this amazing progression of purity in handwritten copying with Old Testament manuscripts. The differences are minuscule, with about 99% of the differences in the manuscripts being, oh, this pronoun is a different pronoun, or the word order was switched around. I mean, it's super, super minor when you think about thousands of years of transcribing. And the 1% of discrepancies that do exist that are a little more meaningful, they don't cause anything close to an earth-shattering mark on our faith. We can rest assured that God has been at work in preserving His Word and the transcribing across the millennia. I mean, actually, it should amaze us to the fact that amidst all of these wars amongst nations and all the destruction that comes with wars and the natural disasters that just wipe out towns or plagues that wipe out population groups, the word of God has been preserved so that it might speak afresh to every generation thereafter. Now, even here, we have to say, look, you may still be in the place where you don't or you can't get yourself to trust this book, that God has spoken, that he has preserved what he has spoken for our good. And I think it's important we turn to Jesus and hear what he has to say about this. Jesus, the word of God become flesh, he he stops us from looking outward for confirmation. And he says, you know, there's another place you need to be looking. You need to be looking inward for self-evaluation when you come to the Bible. And in John 3, 19 through 20, Jesus says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Whoa, Jesus. I thought you were just a really cool dude. Well, you know, let's talk about this. Now, if you have questions, search them out. Christianity is a thinking faith. It's not where you you check your brain at the door. You meant to think through, ask the questions, and pursue truth. But we have to be aware of how we as blind people don't like to be told that we're blind. That we as blind people don't like to to be told that our lives are destructive, 
that our hearts are corrupt and that we need saving. I mean, this book is one of the most amazing places in the world where the God of the universe meets us. It's where heaven and earth overlap and bubbling out of its pages are grace, like a natural spring. It just continues to flow with the truth of who God is. And if we have the ears to hear and the hearts to understand, we can actually know God. Because what God has said is better than anything we can come up with on our own. Next, when God speaks, it's not only sight for the blind, but it's also food for the starving. You know, the, the Bible is nourishing food. Get your fork and your knife. It's delicious. It's tasty. And in verse 10, the psalmist says, it's more desired, more costly than gold. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. You want to put your finger in it and dip again and again as it drips off this fresh honey. Okay, really? <laughs> you know, we've had many a conversations. I'm not a reader. I don't get anything out of it. What's going on? We've all had those moments where you start to read the Bible and you daze out or you, you've read the passage over and over again and you're trying to figure out what is going on here. You scratch deeper and deeper just to have something for the day. And so we naturally ask, how can the Bible really be that good? I mean, this psalmist, is this a little bit of hyperbole? Uh, psalmist, do you really believe the Bible is that good, that God's word is that great? Well, I think part of the problem is our expectations, um, how do we normally pick our friends? How do we normally pick our relationships? It's because we usually pick people who are a lot like us, and we have tons of common ground. So conversations just flow so naturally, right? Oh, you like this band. I like this band. Oh, you shop at that grocery. I shop at that grocery. Oh, you work here. I work there, you know? And so we instantly spark up these conversations because of shared interest and shared common ground. But when we come to God, he's so other than us. Almost the only shared ground that we have is that he made it and we stand on it. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so when we come to his word, we come now to our heavenly father like children in Indian style, waiting for him to teach us how this big, big world works and how he's working in it. But you say, Gabe, I just want you to know God speaks to me in a lot of different ways, okay? He speaks to me in nature. He speaks to me when I listen to an amazing song, when I'm having a conversation with a friend. And quite frankly, I feel like he speaks to me more. I feel him more. Well, just because God has revealed himself in his word doesn't mean he hasn't revealed himself in nature and in relationships. That's what the psalmist is talking about in the first six verses we heard read. God is revealing himself throughout his creation, so yeah, you have these other avenues, and that's happened to me too, sitting under the stars and seeing how powerful God is. And you can discover through natural revelation that there is a God, but you can never discover and know the one true God as he would describe himself. I mean, notice even in the psalm here, there's this powerful shift in verse 7. If you're looking through the psalm, you're going to notice something that's very distinct here, and the name the psalmist uses for God. In verses 1 through 6, he uses the most generic name for God in the ancient Near Eastern culture, El. It is a God. There is a God who is powerful enough to create the whole world. But only when you get to verse 7 and he starts talking about God's word, does he, does he show us that God is personal? God has a name. As it's described here with the Lord in all caps, that symbolizes Yahweh, the Lord's personal name. And it shows in God's word that he cares about us. 
We can't get that from a sunset or a wave crashing on the beach. We needed to be told that God cared about us and cares about us. And he does so, as we see here in verse 7, the law of the Lord or the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Now, this word perfect, we instantly think flawless, right? That's, that's our normal thought. But it also, it carries the idea of fullness, wholeness, not a space of emptiness. It is completely saturated. It's perfect. Imagine a feast that beckons you to come and sit and enjoy a course after another course after another course after another course of delicious food. And you're full, but you're not stuffed. You're satisfied, but you're not bloated. (laughs) You don't have to take Tums after this one. But who has time for a feast, right? Give me a power drink as I run out the door to work. Give me the prepackaged Jesus in the fast food line or a slim, fast Holy Spirit on my way to get me through the morning, right? And there's no wonder that we're starving as people, that we're so hungry. This is why it's so crucial to know what the Bible offers us, what God is saying through his word, because it's the only way to satisfy our soul. The Bible needs to be our desire and our delight. The psalmist says, more to be desired than gold or honey or maybe your promotion or maybe that grade at school or maybe that perfect body, whatever that is, fill it in the blank. And at the dawn of time, the way God even created us, he created us as desiring people. He created us in Genesis 2. It talks about how God created us and put us in the garden and put all these delightful trees around us that we might desire them for our good. But there was one tree, right, that we were not to desire. And in Genesis 3, they saw it and they desired it. The language is very intentional. It's the same language we find here in the psalm. They did not listen to God's word and so desired their own wisdom, their own power, their own way, And ever since then, our appetites have been all messed up. And so now we desire the things that actually starve us. I mean, no wonder we schedule ourselves to the max with no room for rest. We hunger for more and for more. Our calendars are packed with no room even for sleep. And we fill our time with things that we hope will give us meaning. We find ourselves with bloated stomachs while also being malnourished, eating and eating and eating with no substance. We do this all the time um, when we hope we'll get nourished by just having conversations with friends or listening to your pastor on Sunday or driving with Caleb on the radio, um, maybe doing a carbo load of Tim Keller sermons. You know, I don't know. You know, you've had this major uh, feast of Keller and a side of coil. And, and, but what you really need is a healthy diet of the ongoing organic word of God. You getting your nose in the book. Because what God says about himself is better than anything we make up. And I'm not making things up up here, but you know what I mean. (laughs) You know, and Jesus himself, Jesus himself, he tells us that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And his beatitudes as he's talking to his disciples. And it's, and it's in God's word we have this righteous feast worth entering. So many times this is the last place we go. We feel worn out. We seek answers. And we feel lonely. 
and then this never gets touched. We don't expect that God actually speaks, that this is actually God's word speaking to us. That it's much finer than gold, sweeter also than honey, than drippings of the honeycomb. Can you taste it? But at the end of the day, not only do we long for God's word to bring sight to the blind and food for the starving, but we want joy for the brokenhearted. Joy for the brokenhearted. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This word rejoicing, it's not a subtle clap after an elementary recital, okay? This is, if you are soccer fans, and I am, I am one, this is the World Cup just scored their first goal against Portugal in power and light, and thousands of people are erupting. I mean, this is insane and intense joy that can't be contained. You know, one of the hardest things um, I've done as a pastor recently was do a memorial for a baby who didn't make it full term just a couple weeks ago. As I was weeping with the parents and the family and my own wounds of Allie and I losing our first child in a similar way, I, where do I go for comfort in times like that? Where do we go looking for comfort to know that God cares about this situation? I didn't point them to a beautiful sunset and recite a poem. That's garbage in the midst of pain, quite frankly. I didn't tell them to go take a long walk in the park and wait for God to speak to you. I pointed them to God's word because that's the place that I can only find that has lasting comfort. When you're in the midst of despair, I pointed them to Jesus' love for children that's recorded in Matthew. When they felt like they had no hope, I pointed them to what Paul wrote, to a little church in Thessalonica, and when he says, we weep as those who, who we do not weep as those who have no hope. Because of the gospel, we weep as those with hope. I pointed them to, to John 19, that God actually entered our pain and defeated death on the cross. I pointed them to John 21, that the resurrection has happened, that even Thomas puts his fingers in the side of the scars of Jesus, that the resurrection will happen for those who are his. I pointed them to Revelation 21 and said, one day God will wipe every tear from your eye and death will be no more. I can't get that from a sunset. That's got to come from God telling us he loves us with every page that's on his word. And it's in moments when you feel he's incredibly silent. You have to remember he's already spoken. Can we hear him? Are we listening? At some point, life is going to hit you too. Maybe you're already in the thicket of it. Your job is frustrating. This last date that you just had was a disappointment. Maybe you just lost a, a friend or a family member to death. And this is why it matters what we believe about God's word. Because it's the only hope for joy in a brokenhearted world. Jesus himself says this, these things I have spoken to you in words, in words, not in just in nature, but in words, I clarified them. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Not emaciated, not malnourished, but full. What God has said is better than anything we can make up. Yes, at first it tells us we're blind, we're starving, we're brokenhearted. 
But when God speaks, he doesn't just speak even to heal us. He goes above and beyond than what we could even imagine because then he equips his people to have the very words of joy. The Apostle Paul, he describes it this way when writing to young Timothy. All scripture is breathed out, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the person of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God's word is not some static letters on a page, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is active. And when it is received, it makes his people active. You know, the theologian N.T. Wright, he says the Bible isn't simply a repository of true information about God, Jesus, and the hope of the world. It's rather part of the means by which in the power of the Spirit, the living God rescues his people and his world and takes them forward on the journey toward his new creation and makes us agents of that new creation even as we travel. Do you see God's word like that? You know, as we look throughout our lives, there's nothing more powerful than our words. I'm sure you've heard many times people refute, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We've been in a culture long enough that we, even as a culture, say that is a ridiculous nursery rhyme. Um, Everyone knows how powerful words are, that they can cut and scar where no surgeon can heal. They can energize where no caffeine can affect. And when God's life-giving words are meditated upon, they're thought upon, they saturate the depths of our heart, then his words become our words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable before you. We no longer are dominated by arrogance that we have to always talk about ourselves to finally feel good about ourselves. But on the opposite, we're not dominated by self-pity such that we remain quiet when we should speak. But instead, whenever we talk, we can talk about God's goodness to us, for us, through us, and in us. To end our psalm, the the psalmist, after just highlighting God's speech, both through creation, but most evidently through his written word, his last thought he he wants to leave us with is to remember who this God is. The Lord, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. The Lord, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. He's both the rock of immovable truth that we can hide in when the world is chaotic around us. And he's also our redeemer who comes and finds us out, comes and redeems us. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who was the word became flesh, as John says, to save us, to give us sight, to feed us, to bring joy. This is who the whole book is pointing to. On every page, this is who we long to know and listen to. I mean, the phrase, God has spoken to me, is a terrible reality when it does not coincide with this perfect and pure book. So if this book really matters, if it really matters, what do we do next? Three really quick takeaways, practical next steps. Read it rightly, read it relationally, and read it regularly. Okay, read it rightly. Get to know the different types of of writing, like the poetry. How do you read poetry differently in God's word over against narrative? How do you read Paul's letters over against a gospel account? How do we read that differently? And then therefore that impacts how we interpret God's word. A really great starter resource on how to do that, since we are a thinking people, 
is how to read the Bible for all it's worth. It's a really quick, easy to read by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Just an easy resource. I felt we're talking about the Bible matters. If I didn't mention a resource, I feel like I would not be serving you well as a pastor. So here's a good one, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. So read it rightly. Secondly, read it relationally. When you read the Bible, remember that this isn't just facts about God, but this is a book from God. And pray that the Holy Spirit would do his illuminating work, that he would actually reveal to you the truth of God's word into your life in a relevant way. In Isaiah, it says that the word of God does not return void. Whatever he's been sent out to do by the power of God's word, he will do it. So are you going to the pages of scripture expecting God to challenge you, expecting him to encourage you, expecting him to speak through his word? And then thirdly, read it regularly. In one sense, this is a lot like almost every other relationship. Um, the more you have a conversation, the more you get to know them, the more they get to know you. Uh, and, and so you set up these breakfast appointments or these lunch appointments to have regular conversation. Well, the more you read God's word, the more you begin to see how the Bible is interlinked throughout, interlinked throughout its whole storyline. You start to understand, well, if this is true and this is true, then this can't be true. And you begin to understand the depths of who God is. So read it rightly, read it relationally, and read it regularly. Why? Because what God has said is better than anything we can make up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Anything that was nonsense that I said this morning, I pray that you would allow your people to forget. Um, whatever resonates with the truth of your word, I pray that it would lodge deep within their hearts and their minds and impact their words and their relationships. God, may you be known, may you be glorified in the proclamation of your word about yourself. Thank you, God, for all that you've done and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.